Uh, this morning we continue in our, our fourth and next to last uh, week of our series through Psalm 139. Uh, we have this morning and next week, and then we are in the season of Lent. I know that that seems uh, hard to believe, but we are approaching the season of Lent, which will carry us uh, up to Easter. So we have a couple of more weeks in, in this series. And as we uh, prepare to uh, jump into our scripture for this morning, the, the section of Psalm 139 in this series known the, that we have been in, I want to I just invite us to to begin to think um, and, and prepare our, our minds and our hearts to engage with what is, I think, the most difficult of uh, the, the verses that are captured in this psalm. And I, I will take, Ed, uh, Ed stopped me in the hall after the Explore class and said, why, why did we choose to preach um, these particular verses? And I said, if I remember correctly, I, I will take the blame for that because I said, if we're going to preach this psalm, we should preach the whole psalm and not just the parts that are make us feel good and that are easy. Um, so... That's my fault um, that we are that we're going to be uh, in 19 through 22. But I want to begin to set the stage and, and invite us to think about the fact that we have um, we tend to have kind of an odd relationship with words, right, and the way that we use the English language. Now, by no fault of our own, we have what is perhaps one of the most complicated and nuanced and odd languages that that exist anywhere in the world. Um, and in my deep research uh, this week for this morning, I mean, really extensive research, I came across a comedian um, who, who captured this uh, really well. He, he's playing both parts of this conversation. One who is trying to understand the English language and is acting as the, the interviewer and the note taker, and then the other who is trying to give explanation for the nuance that is the English language. He says, uh, so we've got... Cats, what about more than one dog? The response there, obviously, is dogs. Okay, going with the S again. Consistent. Good, I like it. What about mouse? Mouses? No, mice. Okay. What about sheep? Sheeps? Sheep. Right, what about sheep? What is the plural for sheep? It is sheep. Great. The plural for sheep is sheep. Got it. Right. That's a lot. Okay. Uh, what about goose? Is it gooses just to keep it nice and simple? Geese. Well, of course, uh, that's what that is. But that must mean that um, the plural for moose is meese? <laughs> Mooses. Moose, right, that's what I'm asking. The plural for moose is moose. Oh, like sheep. Well, that makes perfect sense. What about the word for love? How is it that we have one word that we use to describe the way that we feel about someone, about an individual, about maybe a spouse or someone that we are deeply connected to, and that's the same word that we use to describe the way that we feel about a particular food. I love pizza, but I also love my wife. <laughs> but I don't get in arguments with pizza. So maybe there's... Gosh, I, my wife again is not here this morning, so I, and I know one of you is going to tell her, so I, there it is, <laughs> do with that what you will. And yet when we, when we look at the Greek, and, and we've, we've talked about this when we look at Scripture, 
The Greek translation, we find there when the word love is used, there are different words to describe different types of love. There is philia, which is a brotherly love or a friendship type of love. There is eros, which is an erotic or or passionate type of, of love. And then there is the word agape, which is the word we use to describe the love that God has for us. It is an unwavering and unending love. It is, it, is a, it is a love that is given that is not deserved. It's a love that's given freely. And, and it, apparently there are up to six words that describe love. Those are just three that we are accustomed to, to trying to wrap our heads around. And yet we have one word for love. We use that word to describe multiple things that we feel deeply about or that we feel a certain way about. And if there are different words to describe love, I wonder then if there are different words that we could use to describe hate. Because hate is something that we have some kind of relationship with. We use it to describe the way that we feel about someone who has wounded us. We use it to describe uh, the way that we feel about something that is happening in this world that we, that we disagree deeply with. I may or may not have allowed the words last night to escape my lips. I hate the, the Duke Blue Devils. I know, I know, I know. I, I'm, this is, I'm confessing. <laughs> I, have, I had in that moment a really strong feeling about them, but I could have said the same thing about my Tar Heels last night because they forgot how to play basketball. We use it to attempt to express some great distaste or some great disgust or, or even to, to, to wound those who we feel like have wounded us. And, and yet what we find in Scripture is that there, is, there are not multiple words for hate. There is, there is just the one. And, and we will see it this morning in, in the psalm, and then we see it um, in, in the New Testament, in the, in the Greek. And, and yet what we see in Scripture is that it is not used to describe some emotion, and that's how we tend to describe it. It is more used to describe relationship, the relationship that you have with a particular thing, and specifically that this thing that you are saying that you hate or that you are describing as something you hate, that it is in fact less valuable than something else. It is always offered as a comparison. Comparatively speaking, I have a deeper affection for the Tar Heels than I do the Blue Devils. And, and yet we tend to describe that as some emotion. And, and I wonder what would begin to happen if we allowed it to be less emotive and, and used it to describe comparatively the way that we see the value of one thing compared to another. Let's look at Psalm 139. And rather than just reading uh, verses 19 through 22, which will be uh, the focus of our, our text uh, or the focus of the message I think it's important for this one in particular that we go back and read the, the psalm in its entirety again, just to, just to see the way that these uh, four verses really uh, jump out and feel a bit like a record scratch. So if you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you're able to, uh, please stand. If not, in the posture of your heart, let's stand before the Lord. Psalm 139, this is the NIV. From the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. 
Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I am still with you. If only, God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Just so you know, and and as a preview uh, to next week, Uh, We will wrap up our series with those last two verses of Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It It is David's desire. It is David's longing. It is David's petition, his prayer, his laying himself before the Lord, inviting God's examination of his His heart. Inviting God to do work in his heart so that he may continue to walk in the way that is right and righteous that allows David, that allows David to pray, include in his prayer, uh, these, what we have as verses 19 through 22. David's expression of this hate and this disgust, this hatred. Some translations say that his hatred is perfect, his perfect hatred for those who are against the way of the Lord. And yet when we read that, as a part of the whole, it feels a bit like it's out of place. And it is fascinating to, to do research on a psalm like this and to look at commentator, uh, commentary and listen to the work of uh, commentators and listen to those who have studied this. There's not one who, who doesn't have a difficult time with these words in the context of Psalm 139 because it just doesn't seem to fit somehow. God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, God's care for the the intimate knowledge that, that David has come to appreciate. He knows that God knows everything about him. He knows that God has woven him together in his mother, mother's womb, that he's fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows that there is nowhere that he can go that, that God is not. And, and last week, as we were looking at that, that 
part of the psalm. We said, you know, what if, what if our understanding of, of God and, and feeling, you know, for those of us who might feel like, gosh, I, I'm seeking God. I feel like I'm doing all of the right things. I'm reading scripture. I'm praying and God is nowhere to be found. What if we made this shift and said not that God is nowhere, but that God is now here. That there is no thing, no place in your life, no place, uh, nothing that is going on in your life that God is not aware of and that God is not present in. And that's beautiful. That's to be celebrated. Like, like this, this should be a model for us as we pray, as we go to God. Because it is descriptive of who God is. And it's good for us to, to allow our, our minds and our hearts to be in tune with David in this. For, for all of the ways that we doubt God's providence and God's presence with us. To begin to make this our prayer. And then yet... In the midst of it, there are four verses that, if you were to follow the lectionary, that is a, a three-year cycle of passages in Scripture that, that oftentimes um, sermons and, and the liturgical year can be built around. So far, I have not found one that just focuses solely on Psalm 139, 19 through 22. There's a lot of focus on the, the passage that is... Uh, being fearfully and, and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 13-18, or Psalm uh, 139, 1-6, or Psalm 139, 7-12. And yet because of how difficult it seems that th- these words of, of hatred and, and disgust of David's are inserted into this prayer, we, we, we're not sure what to do with that. And yet if we remember that Two things, I think, uh, help us to approach this in a way that is helpful for us. One is that this, remember, the Psalms are the, the prayer book of God's people. Right? And, and this isn't the only place in the Psalms that you see this like, heartfelt, like from the gut kind of honesty before the Lord. So many of us, are, are, we feel like we're taught to pray in a certain way and our prayers need to be nice and our prayers need to be calculated and... and you better not say the things that you're really thinking before the God, even before God, even though there is there is nothing that is hidden from God's sight. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, and yet we withhold from God the things that we really feel when we are praying because we feel like oh, I don't want to offend God. I don't want to say something that is off-putting. I don't I don't want to uh, to do something that that would make God disappointed in me. Listen, there is nothing that is more off-putting to God. Uh, ever in our lives than just the, the fact that we have sin in our lives. That there is nothing that you can do or say that is more off-putting uh, to God than the fact that there is brokenness and sin in your life, that we suffer under the effects of sin in this world. Because God is a holy God, God cannot condone our sin. It is off-putting to God, and yet because of God's great mercy, as we see exemplified in the person of Jesus, we see that God draws near to us in our sinfulness, that God draws near to us in our brokenness, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, and I think that the people of God understood that in a way that allowed them to pray these honest, bold prayers to the Lord, to express verbally the things that were deep in their hearts. Isn't it interesting if you know the story of David, you know his rebellion, the man after God's heart, the one who was chosen as king, who leveraged his power for himself. That there was this this moment 
that we hear about in David's life where he, he lusted after a woman that was the wife of someone else. And as a man in power, he arranged time with that woman. And because she became pregnant, he invited her husband Uriah back from the battlefield where he was fighting for David's kingdom. Invited him back, invited him to be with his wife so that David could cover up his iniquity, his sin. And then he had Uriah killed. And yet there's something that David has experienced in his relationship with the God who called him, with the God who created him. There's something that David has, ex- has experienced in this relationship that allows him to be honest about uh, his feelings toward those who are haters of God. And yet for that one moment in David's life, we could say, well, David, you, it seems like you, you kind of fall into that category. You fit the bill there. You fall into that category. And friends, that's true of all of us. We all, in in some way or another, are rebellious against God's best for us. And yet it does not change, it does not alter the fact that God longs for you to know and experience the fullness of His love and forgiveness and the wholeness of life that is meant to be found in Jesus. It's what gives us the space to be honest, to express honestly and boldly the things that we feel. And so perhaps it is because of what David has experienced in the grace and faithfulness of God that he has experienced the goodness of God, that he's able to survey the world around him and say, there are things that that stand against the kingdom of God. There are people that perpetuate um, ways of living and ways of thinking that are in contention with the ways of God. And because I have come to love God so much, because I have come to experience God's grace in my own life, I want so badly for his kingdom to reign on this earth that, that, that David, it's as if David is saying, if you stand opposed to God, I stand opposed to you. Because I so deeply feel like my life is meant to honor the king. And I'm going to fight for the things that the king fights for. I'm I'm going to oppose those who oppose the king. So one, we remember that the Psalms are the prayer book of, of God's people. Two, and I think this is important. Sometimes scripture for us is is just descriptive. It's describing for us the thoughts or the attitude or the actions of someone else. It is not necessarily prescriptive. Now, maybe this becomes your prayer. Maybe in your prayer time tonight, as you lay your head down, you pray these words, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. I don't maybe don't use that and you know when you're saying prayers with your children as you're putting them to bed. But then why would David be led to include this in this psalm? And and what can we learn from it? Is there some prescription in this for us, this description of David's heart before the Lord? 
think it's important here to see that David is speaking of those who are enemies of God. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies because, God, they are your enemies. And yet, and here's, I believe, where we need to turn the mirror on ourselves a bit. We have a tendency to kind of approach that the other way around. That if I hate someone, or if I dislike someone, or if I disagree with someone, I assume that God feels the same way about that person that I do. If that person is my enemy, then it means that they are God's enemy because my God thinks the same way that I think and feels the same way about things that I feel. And yet that's not, that's not accurate. And, and yet we, as we've said for weeks in, in this series, we were created in God's image and we have spent our lives trying to return the favor. To make God into our image. Meaning that if God, if I feel a certain way about someone or something, God must feel the same way that I do about that person or that thing or that political party or that ideology or whatever it is. And yet, Scripture is clear, God's ways are not our ways. It is me by the work of the Holy Spirit that is meant to open my life up to being transformed, to becoming more like Christ, not making Christ more like me, not making God more like I am, not asking God to think the same way about things that I think about things. So I think that's the first thing that we learn from this, is that because of David's intimate connection with God, because David has so learned the heart of God, because David is beginning to wrap his mind and his heart around what God is doing in this world by establishing a kingdom, by establishing a people with a specific and unique identity as God's people, God is doing a work. God is in the process of fulfilling a promise that he gave to Abraham generations before. Through you, I will bring into this world a nation, and through that nation, I will bless the entire world. Now, David doesn't know the entirety of the way that that promise will be fulfilled in the person of Christ. But David, because of his intimate connection to God, because he has allowed God to deal with his sinfulness and his brokenness, because he has asked, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me in Psalm 51, but renew in me a right spirit. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Bring me back into your presence that I walked away from, that I walked out of by choosing to do my own thing. Bring me back into the goodness of your presence and help me to see the world the way that you see it and help me to have eyes to see what you are doing in this world. And in doing that, in being intimately connected to God, David begins to see this world the way that God sees it. And it allows David to look at those who stand opposed to God. And to say, I, those are no friends of mine. Those who stand opposed to your ways, God. I, I hate them, and as I said, some translations say with a perfect hate. And if David is evaluating, he's not, he's not expressing some, um, some emotion that he's feeling. If he's evaluating there, one thing held up next to the other. The ways of those who are in rebellion of God in no way compare to the ways of God. 
And, and David is saying there's, there's no place for them in relationship or companionship with me. Right? And I think that's the second thing that we need to ask ourselves and, and pay attention to. The first is that um, it's out of David's deep relationship with God that he's able to have assessment of the world around him. Are we seeking to allow ourselves to be molded into the likeness of Christ, who is the exact representation of, of God as we read in the New Testament? Are we inviting ourselves to, to um, be molded into the exact representation of Christ, or are we trying to make God in our image? Right? Are we deeply and intimately connected to the heart of God? Are we, are we creating space in our lives for that to happen? Or are we seeking to make God fit what we think is right? Secondly, do we have companionship with the things in this world that God calls evil? What is our level of permissiveness when it comes to those things that seek to, to kill and destroy, the things that the enemy uses in this world to do harm? to change our view of self, to change our view of others, to change our view of God? Do we allow those things to exist? Are we permissive of those things? Or, or because of our, our hearts for the things of God, are we willing to say, no, there's, there's no place in that for my life? See, I think that there's a, an important distinction between companionship and relationship. Jesus was willing to have relationship. He was willing to approach the unapproachable. We read in Luke's gospel that Jesus, uh, in his calling of Levi, the tax collector, that Jesus said, hey, let's, let's go and throw a party at your house, and, and I want you to invite all of the other sinners and tax collectors to come. And Jesus shared a meal with them. He entered into a relational setting with those who were enemies of God because of his love for them. There was something transformative about that. With the woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus related to her in a way that no other religious leader had related to her before. He showed her compassion. He showed her mercy. He showed her grace when what she deserved was death. Jesus was willing to enter into relationship with those who perpetuated things that were harmful in this world and that were against the things of God. And yet for companionship, Jesus called 12. And there were others that, that we could say Jesus had companionship with Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. He had a unique relationship with them. But for companionship, Jesus called 12 to follow him for three years, to walk with him, to learn from him, to hear his heart, to hear his prayers, to experience life with him. And, and so what I, what I don't want to have happen is that as a, as a body, as a church, we leave here today and say, I can have nothing to do with anything that is evil in this world. I can have nothing to do with people that I disagree with or people that are hurtful or people that perpetuate evil in this world. If the church has nothing to do with the evil and broken things in this world, how is it that we can hope to be champions of the gospel and, and the offers of a new way for those who perpetuate evil and hurtful and broken things in this world? 
At some point, the church needs to be willing, as I said last week, to be courageous with the message that we have. To say, to walk into places where there are hurting and those who hurt and say, hey, there's a different way. And you're hurting and you're causing hurt because of some hurt in your life. Because of something that's been done to you, all you know how to do is to hurt others. Let me show you a different way. Let me tell you about a God who has transformed my life. Relationship is important. But there's a distinction between relationship and companionship. I'm not called to have companionship, to allow into the inner parts of my life and my heart those things and those people that are evil and that do hurt. Yet I'm called to have relationship with them so that I might offer them a new way. But I'm afraid that far too many of us allow companionship and invite companionship with those things that God would call evil. We allow them to become a part of us. We allow this pattern or this habit to begin to shape us and to change us. And then we find ourselves living a life where we want to present one thing to the world around us. And yet all the while we are continuing to allow this other thing to feed us and to shape us. That's companionship. I'm called to have companionship first and foremost with my creator through Jesus, the one who makes it possible to know that deep, intimate, abiding relationship with God that allows me to see the world around me and to see those who cause hurt and to see those who stand against God for what they are. And then it's through the lens of God's eyes and it's with the beating of God's heart that I'm invited to approach that, whether it's in prayer or whether it's in relationship. But it doesn't mean that I welcome those things in. It doesn't mean that I create space for those things to shape me. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? That one verse there, 21. That is David giving the Lord license to continue to shape his heart. That means that if David is in the wrong here, that means that if David is speaking out of turn, that means that if, if David is, is, is taking his feelings about those in the world who are haters of God and, and, and those feelings are becoming um, something that are destructive in his life, he's giving God license to deal with that. God, do, do I not hate those who hate you and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? Have, have I become enmeshed in this hate? Or, or have I become too, too deeply connected? Am I, am I allowing for companionship with, with those things that you hate or with those that you hate? Always keeping himself open to be shaped by the work of God in his heart. Not just assuming that because he feels a, a given way about someone or something that, that God feels the same way about that person or that thing. So friends, we, we can speak and pray and pour ourselves out before the Lord with honesty. We can call evil what is evil in this world and we are meant to. We can call it for what it is. And, and, and I wonder if one of the things that's begun to happen to the church in the West is that we're, we're, 
we've become um, afraid to call evil what is evil. We've, we've become afraid to, to name where there is hurt and perpetrators of hurt in this world. We've become afraid to stand for what is right in the sight of God. What if we began to do that? And what if we began to model the manner in which we do that after the person of Jesus, who was unapologetic, unapologetic in his devotion to the ways of God, unapologetic in his devotion to the Father and his work of establishing and upholding God's kingdom on this earth, and yet unapologetic in extending grace to those who needed it. Friends, what would your prayer life begin to look like if you just prayed honestly and allowed God to sort those things out that needed to be sorted out? And then what would your life begin to look like? If because of the way that you gave yourself honestly to the Lord, you were also willing to walk with integrity into the lives of those who have been hurt, into the lives of those who are causing hurt, into those places where hurt is happening and offered a different way and carried into every, of those, every one of those situations your own scars, the evidence of the ways that you've been wounded and say, yeah, I, I know what it is to be hurt. I know what it is to cause hurt in the lives of others, but let me tell you about one who was hurt on my behalf who was pierced for my transgression, by whose stripes I am healed. His name is Jesus, and he offers us a new way. And we have an opportunity this morning for, um, to, to gather together as the church around the table that reminds us of the body that was broken, that reminds us of the blood that was shared, that reminds us that Jesus was willing because of his deep and intimate connection with the Father, because of his companionship with the Father, Jesus was willing to have relationship with the broken and the hurting in this world. And because in our brokenness we can do nothing to rescue ourselves, we can do nothing to change our own circumstances, Jesus was willing to allow himself to be wounded on our behalf. Revealing to us, reminding us, showing us that it's not by our own efforts that we are saved. It's by His accomplishment. Creating space for us to come honestly before the Lord. To pray prayers of anger. To name our hate and disgust for the brokenness in this world. And then to place ourselves in the hands of a God who is continuing to mold us and make us like his son Jesus so that even in our weakness and woundedness we can be a people who take hope into this world. Amen.